Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. I will read the first text that you sent me as you were watching it. <laughs> OMG, Chris, what is this trash movie? <laughs> I'm 20 minutes in and I'm so confused. And also, feel like this is maybe racist? Still better than Fantastic Four. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to What Went Wrong. I am your host, Chris Winterbauer, here with my co-host, Lizzie Bassett. Lizzie, how are you doing this week? Chris, I'm thriving. I I think there was a three-day period this week where I did not leave my house and I didn't realize it until the third day. And then I went for a walk. And you know what? What a treat. Just like Jesus. Uh, <laughs> all right. So this week we have a film that is very close to my heart, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, the little scene 2018 Terry Gilliam film starring Adam Driver that he filmed in between Star Wars and Marriage Story and everything else that he had going on. Lizzie, you watched this for the first time last night. What were your thoughts? First of all, did not know that this movie existed. Yep. Um, it's one of the most confusing movies I've ever seen in my entire life and not in like a cool, let me break down this Christopher Nolan mind trick way, but in a, I don't think I need to watch this way. <laughs> right. Right. Very fair. I agree it was confusing, and I knew a lot about the movie going into it. I will attempt to describe the plot for you. The, the, the shortest version of Adam Driver is a jaded commercial director who, after hooking up with his boss's girlfriend, reconnects with a Spanish cobbler who played Don Quixote in his student film production of the text 10 years prior, back when Adam Driver was not jaded. To Driver's Horror, this old man, played by Jonathan Price, has become convinced he actually is Don Quixote in the interim 10 years. The two then go on a string of loosely connected adventures that require the guiding synopsis from Wikipedia to track throughout the story. The man who killed Don Quixote is famous for one specific reason, and that is it took... Terry Gilliam, 30 years to make it. Stop. And How? it is <laughs> unusual in film, unlike sculpture, painting, or even installation art, filmmaking is an endeavor that cannot be accomplished alone. It requires the cooperation of hundreds, if not thousands, of creative people in the service of ultimately one man or woman's vision. Film productions are therefore tightly scheduled. They tend not to run into the multi-year realm of these other works, specifically due to the astronomical costs involved. And when they do, we tend to hear about it, like Apocalypse Now, for example. Mm -hmm. However, there are some occasions when making a movie becomes a truly Sisyphean task, driven forward only by a director's dedication and maybe delusion in this case and Aww. it is the case for the man who killed don quixote a movie that terry gilliam sought out to make in 1989 and finished in 2018 so let's dive in so terry gilliam is the only american-born member of monty python i did he, not realize he was american he is american he was born in minnesota he trained as an animator and a strip cartoonist in Los Angeles, and eventually he started animating segments for Monty Python after working mm. with John Cleese on a separate project. 
he has a successful stint with Monty Python. He's mm-hmm. brought in as a full member. But after the breakup of Monty Python, Gilliam moved into feature filmmaking. So he co-directed Life of Brian, and he clearly had an affinity and skill for this craft. And so he explodes onto the scene with his you know, wildly inventive second feature, which is called Time Bandits. And if you haven't seen Time Bandits, I highly recommend it. It is insane. It's like this 1980s, like, really dark family film that follows a young boy who joins a renegade troop of dwarves on an unpredictable journey through time. And it, the movie features, like, tears in space-time. They go to Italy during the Napoleonic Wars. They go to Greece. They're on the Titanic. Robin Hood is featured. There are giants, like, minotaur monsters, a ridiculous amount of explosions, cheesy effects. It's got Sean Connery, John Cleese, Shelley Duvall, Ian Holm, and oh. Terry Gilliam shot it for $5 million. Oh, so wow. He pulls off this insane epic for almost no money, relatively speaking. And the movie's a huge success. It grossed $42.5 million in North America alone. And with it, Terry Gilliam's able to then go and make the movie that he'd wanted to originally make, which is Brazil. Probably the movie he's most famous for. It's a dystopian satire. It's kind of like 1984 meets Dr. Strangelove. It's absolutely nuts and brazil did lose money at the box office but it was like a huge critical hit it's considered one of the greatest british films ever made and gilliam's like two for two at this point in time he's he's killing it and he decides he's going to complete what he calls his imagination trilogy Mm -hmm. with a movie called the adventures of baron munchausen which is again like wildly whimsical absurd (laughs) Uh, And once again, a a critical darling. It got four Academy Award nominations. But unfortunately, it's Terry Gilliam's first box office bomb. So released in 1988, the budget of the film was just over $46 million and grossed $8 million at the box office. Ouch. Due to what appears to be protosorial negligence, Gilliam is accused of going massively over budget on Munchausen as opposed to the first two. So basically... Columbia Pictures expected the budget to be $23.5 million. It seems like the producer lied and said they could do the movie for that amount, which Gilliam didn't believe. And then within six weeks of shooting, they were $10 million over budget, and they ended up being like double the budget by the end of the shoot. So regardless of the, de- the details, Terry Gilliam comes out of this movie in being the in the hole, and he's basically tagged as you're a fiscally irresponsible director yeah and to make matters worse with every project his budget's gone up and his box Box office office receipts have gone down yeah and so it's kind of a weird like m night Shyamalan situation where he came out too hot out of the gate maybe Mm -hmm. and things are slowing down a little bit so shortly after the release of munchausen gilliam reads don quixote which is miguel de cervantes's famous novel from 400 years ago that follows alfonso quijano an aging gentleman from La Mancha in Spain who, after reading too many chivalric romances, loses his mind and decides he's a knight errant destined to revive chivalry under the moniker Don Quixote de La Mancha. That's the original Don Quixote that we get very little of in Terry Gilliam's eventual adaptation. Honestly, I've never read Don Quixote and I was too lazy to look up exactly what the plot was, but that does shed some light on the movie that I viewed. Um, yes, so that's I, a little I'm bit gonna, of a helpful backstory. I'm going to give a little more credit back to Terry Gilliam, now that I know that the original story is about a man losing his mind. Uh, yes. Th- that, that helps. And Gilliam's affinity for the material makes perfect sense. Here is a man passing through middle age, fighting to tell stories that are considered by those around him to be too large, too fantastic, and ultimately too unrealistic to produce. The world tells Don Quixote that he's insane, and we love him for defiance of this fact. The world tells Terry Gilliam that he's insane for trying to make these movies. Mm -hmm. Gilliam's style and his skill is showing us how maybe the lunatics are actually the sane ones, right? right? That's kind of his consistent theme that he brings to his films. Gilliam isn't the first director to be enamored by this property. Of all the older famous directors, who do you think spent a large chunk of their life trying to make this movie happen, an adaptation of this movie happen. Was it Stanley Kubrick? No. Orson Welles. 
Oh, that's right. Oh, Orson no. Welles. Orson. Once again, Orson Welles famously spent the last 30 years of his life attempting to adapt Don Quixote. He eventually produced over a thousand pages of screenplay for the project, shot dozens of reels of film with a lead actor who passed away in, before he could ever finish the project. Oh, no. And he tinkered with it, and it was unfinished at the time of his death in 1985. So, once again, we have a famous property that bested Orson Welles, and we have this new director attempting to bring it to life. Brief sidebar, but have you seen Orson Welles' champagne commercial yes. from... It, okay. Yes. <laughs> it is one of them. For anybody, if you don't know what we're talking about and you haven't seen this before, do yourself a favor and just search Orson Welles' champagne commercial on YouTube, and you will... It's a, it's a wild like two and a half minute ride. <laughs> yeah, that is actually relevant. He took those types of projects actually to try to finance pickup shots of oh, Don Quixote no. late That's in life. sad because he's just like hammered drunk. In yeah, this so thing. like Hollywood had disowned him and he would do commercials and attempt to scrape together funds. So in 1990, Terry Gilliam signs a deal with Phoenix Pictures to produce a movie called Don Quixote. But Things sour quickly between the two when Phoenix Pictures wants Sean Connery to play Don Quixote, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, Weird. given he's supposed to be an older Spanish man. And they refuse to give Terry Gilliam the amount of money that Terry knows he'll need to make the project. So Gilliam's reluctant to make it for less than what he needs after the Munchausen experience. Right. So Gilliam walks away and Don Quixote moves forward with another director at Phoenix Pictures, and it seems like... Unfortunately, that's it. So in 1991, Gilliam released The Fisher King with uh, Robin Williams and Jeff Bridges. He followed it up with 12 Monkeys, which is my favorite of his films. Uh, Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt, time travel science fiction film. It rocked the box office and it brought him roaring back. It made $170 million worldwide on a $29 million budget. Gilliam stayed under budget and delivered a studio success. It was also the first movie he did that he didn't write. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, he then jumped to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, the Hunter S. Thompson fever dream of a movie that despite, yep, despite starring Johnny Depp and Cameron Diaz, it did lose money at the box office. People didn't oh, that's quite know what to think about it. I feel um, like that's, that's become like since become a bit of a cult classic it, for sure. It has. Yeah. Like a lot of his films. Um, however, good news in the interim in 1997, uh, the Fred Shapizzi-directed version of Don Quixote that Phoenix Pictures was financing falls apart. They ditch the property, and all of a sudden, it's back on the table. So eight mm. years after Gilliam first tried to mount it, he resecures the rights to the project, and tired of Hollywood and all the shenanigans, he and his producers say, we're going to put together European financing for the film. So they somehow cobbled together a $40 million budget, which is one of the biggest budgets ever to not have any United States financing attached. Gilliam later admitted that he realistically needed $60 million to make the project, but they were going to go for it with 40. They have enough money to make something, so it's time to go. He leverages his relationship with Johnny Depp off of Fear and Loathing to bring Mm -hmm. him in as the film's lead. He casts a 70-year-old French actor, Jean Rochefort, as Don Quixote himself. And uh, Jean Rochefort, after joining the movie, would spend seven months of prep learning English for the part. So he actually didn't speak fluent English before signing on to the movie. He was so dedicated to it that he learned English for the part. Now, this next section that I'm going to talk about a lot of the clips I use and much of the information that I'm pulling is from an excellent documentary that's called Lost in La Mancha. So initially it was supposed to be, as all of these are, behind a the behind scenes. the scenes yeah. video thing that they're going to include for the financier or put on the VHS or DVD mm-hmm. eventually. And it becomes a, a slow motion recapture of this thing falling apart. Unfortunately, the bumps in the road start very early. So while in pre-production... $8 million of financing falls through. Mm. So the budget drops from $40 million to $32 million. That's a big jump. It's a big jump. They just lost 20% of their budget when they were already 40% under budget of what Gilliam really thought he needed. This means that while it's still possible to complete the movie, Terry Gilliam has to nail it. Everything needs to go exactly to plan, which, as we know, covering these movies, yeah. literally never happens and he has a history of the opposite happening on Mm -hmm. his projects 
A tighter budget adds innumerable issues to the production, not the least of which is that the actors are all doing the project for reduced rates. So as a result, they're trying to schedule the movie between other projects that take priority. So when an actor is attached to multiple projects, they have to define the order of priority in their contracts. So like, for example, hypothetically, let's say Adam Driver is working on Star Wars. Star Wars is going to take what's called first position to, let's say, a marriage story, the Noah Baumbach indie movie that he wants to do. When your movie is not the first position movie on any of your main actor's schedules, it means you're left at the whim of all of the other productions that are happening that they're attached to. That's a nightmare. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch. Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So Gilliam is in prep for, you know, nine, ten weeks in Spain, and he can't get his actors to Madrid for rehearsals, costume fittings, or makeup tests. Who else outside of Johnny Depp was a really big name attached to this? Because I imagine that French actor probably didn't have... Like a ton of projects? Jean Rochefort was a big name in Europe. And it was European financing. So that's why I think, you know what I mean? It was good. And so Johnny Depp was the big name, obviously. Gotcha. Also, this is peak Johnny Depp, right? What's the actual year we're looking at right now? It's right before peak Johnny Depp. So this is in 2000. So we're just before Pirates of the Caribbean. We're two years out from Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. Yeah. The person in a production that has to deal with the schedule is the film's first assistant director in this case a man named phil patterson so the first assistant director to those of you who don't know is responsible for the organization of the film production he or she ultimately determines the schedule they maintain the order and communication between departments they basically have to make sure that things aren't falling behind they have to protect the director from wasting too much time on any particular scene shot setup etc knowing that it'll cost them down the line it's in my opinion the most difficult underappreciated job on any film set you're the de facto bad guy the strict parent the traffic cop and patterson going into this project has concerns to say the least here is one of my favorite clips from lost in la mancha of phil patterson talking about the stress of having no actors during pre-production. Every film is different. It's very hard to compare a Terry Gilliam film to anybody else's films. It's very hard to say what's right or wrong, but this film is in, um, I'd like to say, complete disarray. Absolute and faffing total disarray. But it is absolutely the correct way it should be, given that it's Terry given that it's a Gilliam film, because Captain Chaos um, is completely in his element at the moment. Oh, no. Captain Chaos is not the name you want a director of a multi-million dollar movie to have. (laughs) Captain Chaos is in his element, is one of my favorite quotes. Working outside of Hollywood, which is, you know, why they went to Europe in the first place, has come with some serious costs. Not the least of which is the fact that the movie, like any movies of this size, needs a soundstage to build its interior sets in. So a soundstage is an enormous warehouse-sized space that has been soundproofed and rigged for lighting and massive amounts of electrical draw. It turns out that there's only one left in Madrid that's available for their shoot window. So in Los Angeles, there are 
hundreds of sound mm-hmm. stages. In Vancouver, there are a lot, not quite as many. And now in Atlanta, there are just an absurd amount of sound stages. Well, but somewhere like Madrid, that's a medieval, you know, city, yes. like there is limited, even open available space to build a airplane hangar sized facility. You just can't do it. Exactly. So they, you know, this is one of the instances where they lack the infrastructure mm-hmm. to support this project necessarily. So it turns out there's one left in Madrid that's available. The team goes to visit it, and it is a shithole. They walk inside. (laughs) It looks like there's just dirt all over the floor. There's this, like, just awful like weird Dexter style, like murder, (laughs) like cellophane hanging down from everything. And the minute they walk in, the first thing that you notice is the echo. So they, Terry Gilliam clicks his tongue and it sounds as if he has clicked it down the world's largest cave. And it is just echoing back, 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 back. You can't record dialogue in an environment that sounds like a cathedral these sound stages are designed to deaden sound. So you get very clean, low reverb sound that you can affect however you want in post-production. It's going to be nearly impossible in this space. But unfortunately, it's all they have. So not wanting to lose momentum, they book the sound stage and they keep trucking along with pre-production. The next big hurdle is one week out from production, which is September of 2000. The actors are supposed to arrive for fittings and rehearsals, and Jean Rochefort, set to play Don Quixote, the man who has spent the last seven months learning English for the part, fails to board his scheduled flight from Paris. Apparently, while he was at the airport, he felt a pain in his lower abdomen and became convinced that he had prostate cancer. So he goes to see a doctor, and this pushes back Gilliam's already impossibly tight schedule. So the fact that actors aren't showing up at prep is starting to cause slight panic amongst other department heads who have been working overtime with limited mm-hmm. resources to try to make this project work. One of my favorite characters in the documentary Lost in La Mancha is Gilliam's longtime cinematographer, Nicola Pecorini, who is an Italian cinematographer with one eye. And, oh my God. And, and he's great. And he's got like a glass eye. And he says like some, some like, it's a, maybe, maybe like some pretty like politically incorrect stuff throughout the documentary, but he is sure. so. Well, he has one eye. Yeah, he's so funny. So here is Nicola uh, when he's asked about the state of things. This is when they're a week out from shooting and their main cast member who's playing Don Quixote has not arrived on set yet. How would you describe the state of things. Sheer panic. <laughs> like total panic, you know, chickens with no heads running around. I mean, it is real panic now. You know what he sounds like? <laughs> he sounds like he sounds like Quint in Jaws when yes, he knows that, yes. like, that like <laughs> crazy laugh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's what Nicole is thinking at this point in time. And he's not wrong. So Jean Rochefort is diagnosed with a prostate infection. Oh, but he's right. it's considered mild enough that he can work. So he flies to set the next day. The new concern is simple. Can an elderly man mm-hmm. with a prostate infection ride a horse? Yeah, that seems like a problem. Don Quixote spends the whole movie yeah. on a horse. Gilliam's going to have to roll the dice because pre-production is over and production has arrived. The first week of the shoot is set to take place in the Bardenas Reales Preserve. Pardon my accent. The It's a desert region that's four hours from Madrid. Due to the distance, the cast and crew have to be housed nearby, mm-hmm. adding considerable expense. So they cannot, under any circumstances, spend more than a week at this location. They're shooting it first for a reason. It gives the production design team time to finish building the sets sets, yeah they'll shoot their exteriors first they'll get it when they have good weather it's this is september 25th that they start shooting so they want to be in the desert before the weather turns for the winter they need sunlight they get out there they set up to film a scene in which don quixote saves johnny depp's character from a spanish chain gang and just to clarify the original storyline for this version of the man who killed don quixote featured johnny depp as an ad executive who somehow travels back in time 
to become Don Quixote's Sancho. So they shoot, you know, the kind of the first master opening shot, and then they move into this choreographed sequence where one of the guards falls over and all the extras in the chain gang, like, work together to get the keys from him. But it turns out that none of the extras know the choreography because the production team didn't have the extras at the rehearsal where they were supposed to learn the choreography, which is news to Gilliam, giving us my favorite Terry Gilliam outburst on set. So Terry Gilliam is a very kind of bubbly, funny, laughy guy until he gets super stressed, at which point the F-bombs start coming out, and I will play that for you now. You need extras to do the rehearsal. If you don't get them, you better tell us so we know in advance that we're fucked. We are fucked, and we don't didn't know it. I want to know when we're fucked in advance, not while not in the middle of a a shoot. I want to know when we're fucked in advance. That's classic. I want to put it on a t-shirt. So... So Gilliam and Patterson, the first AD pivot, and they decide, okay, they don't know the choreography. Let's move on to the dialogue portion of the scene that follows it. You know, we'll give them time to learn the choreography to the side. We'll shoot Jean Rochefort on the horse. Don Quixote walks up. I am Don Quixote de la Mancha. You need to let these men go. You know, he does his, it's like this great introduction. They start rolling the scene. Jean Rochefort comes up and then all of a sudden, I kid you not, an F-16 fighter jet oh my God. flies by overhead. And it's so loud that it's just destroying the microphone. Like, no one, you can't hear anything Joan Rochefort is saying. And so <laughs> it turns out that this location is adjacent to a NATO bombing range. Oh, my God. <laughs> that one hour of every day they do these test flights with the f-16s and today it happens to be the one hour where they pivoted to try to shoot dialogue at this point oh my god so terry gilliam uh, has no choice but to quite literally in the documentary say fuck sound we keep rolling and they decide to shoot through this they basically they're gonna what just adr the dialogue they're gonna either have to adr it or hope that by the time they get to the close-up shots later in the day, the fighter yeah. jet will be gone, and then they can pull the dialogue from the close-up mm-hmm. shots and use it in the wider shots. They start rolling on the next setup, and the horse that Jean Rochefort is sitting on freezes up and refuses to walk forward as he makes his character's introduction. There's this incredible shot of Terry Gilliam in Video Village. F-16s are going, people don't know their oh choreography, and he's sitting there looking at the monitor, muttering to himself, somebody... Push the fucking horse! Push the fucking horse! Like, while fighter jets are going overhead. It's incredible. So they finally get the master of the scene, and they call it a day. They've at least rolled on something. We then get to production day two. The team returns to the desert. They're eager to make up for the lost time from day one. The choreography's been tightened. The jets are nowhere to be seen or heard. They And they basically make it to lunch, and they're, like, they're not too far behind. So the weather report was sunny skies for the rest of the week. Mm-hmm. Then, during lunch, these the darkest, most horrifying, Ghostbuster-style clouds you've ever seen just <laughs> roll in over the production. And Lizzie, what's the problem if you've been shooting with no clouds and then all of a sudden these big, dark clouds just roll in in the middle of your shoot? Every shot is going to look different. You've got different lighting in everything. You've got completely different lighting. So they have no ability to match the lighting of pre- previous shots, which is the cinematographer's nightmare. So yeah. they move into close-ups where they can use enormous light banks to create the uh, illusion of sunlight. Even then, it's not going to match what it looked like in the in the natural light. It's not going to look the same, but it's going to be close enough that they might be able to get by with it, and they have to mm-hmm. shoot something. So they start shooting these close-ups when all of a sudden thunder starts ringing out, which ruins the dialogue again, and then lightning starts to strike. And so when lightning strikes the first AD, Phil Patterson has to shut it down because somebody could get hurt. He shuts down the production. They wrap up the equipment in tarps, but they leave it out. Everybody goes back to their trailers and their cars, and they're thinking, we'll let the storm pass. Hopefully, we'll be able to pick up some shots in the afternoon. Oh, my God. How much of the equipment gets struck by lightning? (laughs) What's the problem (laughs) about storms in the desert? It's very dry, and then it can't absorb the water? Exactly. Everything floods. There's nowhere for the water to go. There's no, like, runoff or irrigation. So the entire canyon they're shooting in floods. (gasps) Mud and water create these rivers sweeping the equipment away. And these crew members are running around desperate trying to grab these bundles of equipment from getting swept away by the mud and water. 
everything is destroyed. The set is destroyed. Everything's muddy. All of the equipment's going to need to be dried out. A lot of it's been damaged. Some of it might be irreparable. Worst of all, the rain has completely changed the topography and color of the landscape. So what before was like this bright white yellow everything's monochromatic has become red green brown orange the desert literally looks different and anything they film going forward won't match what they've already shot to make matters worse the insurance company is only going to cover the damage to the equipment but it won't compensate them in any way for lost time on set so they're not going to get any additional money to add shooting days to the production which is what they really need CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. So that's day two. So then day three. Oh my God. <laughs> so then day three. In an attempt to get something on film, they take a skeleton crew and they relocate to a new part of the desert to pick up a different scene when the fighter jets come back. By the fifth day of production, the equipment has dried out, the weather has turned back in their favor, the team is in fighting form, and they decide, like, let's shoot this sequence of Johnny Depp and Don Quixote, Joan Rushfort on horseback going through the desert talking to each other because we don't have to match, you know, the chain gain scene from earlier. It's fine if it looks different. Well, let's hear what went wrong from Terry Gilliam and Phil Patterson talking to each other shortly after rolling on one of these takes. Cut! We're fucked. Did you see him sit sit on the horse? Fucking crazy. The pain when he sat down. He can't do it. It's just, it ain't going to happen. I was watching his face very carefully when he got on that horse. And it was just... Honestly, I want to go to the French and say I'm going to refuse to shoot with Jean Rochefort on a horse until he's medically fit. Jean Rochefort is fighting a lot of pain. It took two men to get him off of his horse. He had to sit and rest for 40 minutes before walking to his car. So that concluded the first week of filming on this project. They fly Jean Rochefort back to Paris to see his doctor on Saturday, leaving the crew without their Don Quixote at the top of next week. Phil Patterson, the first AD, basically realizes this is no way to shoot a movie. We, like, we have to make some changes. And he attempts to get them to break up the production and then reconstitute themselves once they know what's going on with John Rushfort. But the problem is they can't do that because on Monday they're getting a very special visit. 60 members of the core financing group that's giving Mm -hmm. money to the project are showing Mm -hmm. up on set on Monday for like that one day set visit that they're all excited about to get to see Johnny Depp and the movie that they're financing. Mm -hmm. So Terry Gilliam and the producers know they have to put on at least some dog and pony show for these investors on Monday. And so basically to decide they're going to shoot some sequences that don't involve Don Quixote that are just Johnny Depp scenes. And so they go to Monasterio de Piedra. This is like an incredible waterfall. I think it's actually where they shot the waterfall in the final film 20 years later. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's this seemingly simple sequence where Johnny Depp pulls a fish out of his poncho, smashes it on a rock, (laughs) 
And I know it's totally wild. And his horse nudges him. This movie was like insane in a fun way. Um, yeah, and everything you're telling me, I still I kind of want to see this version. <laughs> yeah. So with sixty of his principal investors watching, Gilliam is once again fucked. This time by a horse. And here is Terry Gilliam as the horse refuses to go along with its blocking. Horse, come on. Come on, horse. Come on, horsey. Fuck with me. Fucker. And cut it, cut it. Let's do it again straight away. Fast. (laughs) Action. Horse, come on, horse. We're moving in. The horse about to move. Okay. Good, 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 good. Good idea. Good. Cut, 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 cut. Turn the camera on this. Turn the camera on. Johnny looks in. Let's just dig it on with it. Johnny's going to, we go into a close up. We don't have to be anywhere. Johnny can do it from here. Leave the camera there. He turns in the camera and walks out. We'll get some shots. This is fucking stupid. Jesus. So, (laughs) literally nothing is going right. Like, he's lost his lead actor maybe forever. Also, animals, like, that's, there's a reason that that is incredibly expensive and difficult to shoot. And they're just not, you can't, as much as you want to be able to control them, you can't. Absolutely. So, he makes it through his day with his investors. Weirdly, by the end of the day, the investors don't know that anything's wrong. The investors seem fine. They, like, got their photo with Terry Gilliam and Johnny Depp. Terry Gilliam is very charming. He, like, made a couple jokes, and then they went on their way. But the producers have just gotten word from Paris, and it will be at least a week before Jean Rochefort is medically fit to travel. So that means they won't have him until week three of shooting at the earliest. So that evening, the insurance adjusters for the film arrive, and they basically say, we need to shut down shooting for the rest of the week. When a studio film is in trouble, a studio can just shut it down. Everything's internal, and they have the funds to do so. They can halt production, pause cash flow, they can reorient as needed. But when an independent film is in trouble, basically something called the completion guarantor or a bond company gets involved. So, you know, Mm -hmm. film productions are such an insanely risky investment that these bond companies come in and for a portion of the budget, three to five percent typically, they'll guarantee the delivery of a product that matches the screenplay and is delivered within the allotted schedule and budget. If the production fails to deliver within those parameters, the bond company can actually take over the production and they can fire the director and bring in other people as needed. So the bond company ultimately is responsible for the finances around the movie. So in this instance, this man, Fred Milstein, is the completion guarantor. He comes to Madrid and he's trying to help them figure out how to salvage the production. And it all depends on John Rochefort. They get word from John Rochefort's doctor that it'll be at least another 10 days now before he can fly. So the production has to keep paying people despite the disruption of work. And it turns out now that the insurance company is claiming that Jean Rochefort's illness is a force majeure event, an act of God event, not covered by the film's insurance policy, which would leave the financiers completely exposed for the entire budget spent so far, even if Jean Rochefort can't complete the movie. So what's clear is that everybody involved can smell blood in the water and Mm -hmm. nobody wants to be stuck with the final bill. Complicating things further, Jean Rochefort, along with Johnny Depp, is considered an essential element on the project. So when you make a film project, essential elements are basically people on the project who are considered irreplaceable. If they try to recast him, they have to refinance the movie. Oh my God. The financiers said, we agree to finance this movie. Provided he plays Don Quixote. Exactly. And if you lose that guarantee, it gives them an out. The producers have their backs against the wall. They have no choice but to delay the production until Rochefort is medically cleared to return to set. And they basically have to furlough all of the cast uh, cast and crew. Yeah, you have to release them. Point in time. They're hoping that'll be October 16th. This is right at the end of the uh, end of September. So they're basically saying, we hope it's two weeks. But all of these crew members are saying, there's no fucking way this guy's going to be able to get on a horse when he gets back. No. And so they're looking for other jobs because they'd been planning on having jobs through weeks and weeks and weeks of production. Right. And, and they've clear effectively, that's not going to happen. Yeah, they've effectively, effectively been fired. So reality comes crashing down on Gilliam. And it's put into clarity by Phil Patterson, remember, first assistant director of the film, uh, when Patterson quits the movie. Yeah, look, I'm going to go back to uh, El Hete, and I'm going to tell the French producers that uh, I'm uh, not going to continue in the project the way it is. 
um, and, and explain to them the reason that I'm leaving the film is that I don't have confidence in the producers to support me in the decisions that need to be made in terms of making the film. We can't make the film. Not the film you want to make. Shortly after Patterson quits, Gilliam and the producers learn that Rochefort has been diagnosed with a double herniated disc in his back. He needs at least another month to recover. Basically, it's the production is over. The, yeah. the rights revert to the insurance company. The producers walk away from the project. They don't mm-hmm. have any connection to it. Basically, over the next nine years, Gilliam again and again attempts to wrestle the rights for the story back from the insurance company. He, you know, made other projects, Tidelam, Brothers Grimm, excuse me, The Imaginarian of Do- Dr. Parnassus, many of mm-hmm. which were plagued with other troubles. Like Heath yeah. Ledger died a third of the way through Imaginarium. Yeah. Gilliam, though, in the back of his mind, always wants to return to Quixote. And so finally in 2009, he gets the rights back from the insurance company. Johnny Depp has remained attached to the project since this entire time. They pull together financing. Actually, Johnny Depp is so busy in 2010 that once they pull the financing together, they actually replace him with Ewan McGregor. And Ewan McGregor comes onto the project to take on the Johnny Depp role. That's a weird Uh, replacement, but I'm still on board. I love Ewan McGregor. And Jean Rochefort is not available, so Robert Duvall is cast as Don Quixote. It seems like they are ready to go. And then once again, financing falls apart in August of that year. Fast forward four years, August of 2014, Terry Gilliam reveals that he's reworked the story. He's ready to dive back into it. It's going to be set in contemporary times and will reflect the ways in which, quote, movies hurt people. I think part of the reason he said it in contemporary time was budgetary. And I do think part of it is that it's become so layered with his own trauma around the project that he's writing himself into the movie he's putting himself in the picture frame so in september of 2014 it's announced that john hurt is coming on to play don quixote and in july of 2015 amazon officially joins the project as a financier full disclosure amazon does employ lizzie through imdb yeah go imdb (laughs) also if you guys haven't gotten a chance Listen to the IMDb podcast. It's also pretty good. Amazon also charges me a lot of money for their services, and I'm unemployed. (laughs) We will gladly take your money. (laughs) Production is supposed to start in the fall, but John Hurt is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Yeah, poor John Hurt. Just brutal. So production is once again delayed. In March of 2016... It's announced that Ewan McGregor has moved on from the project. I think he was doing Fargo at this point in time. Yeah, that sounds right. Jack O'Connell comes in to take over that role. And then at Cannes that year, Gilliam states that they've actually brought Adam Driver in now as the lead. And because John Hurt's health has deteriorated, he has left the project. And Michael Palin of Monty Python is coming in to play Don Quixote. So, so like the casting changes just keep happening. They're all interesting so far. All like great. None of them have been particularly bad. It turns out that Paulo Branco, the Portuguese producer that Gilliam has teamed up for for this newest newest effort, basically lied about the financing that he had access to. We don't have time to get into the details. Basically, this guy sounds shady to say the yeah, least. He's just he, a swindler. He consistent. I mean, he's produced a ton of movies, but he also, it sounds like, consistently was attempting to pull a fast one on Terry Gilliam to get him to, like, sign away all creative control and all rights. Just, like, a, a lot of power play stuff. They're supposed to start production in September of 2016, so that's 16 years after they first went into production, and the money never shows up. So Gilliam takes the project away from Paulo Bronco, and then Bronco sues him, saying... If you go try to make that movie without me, you're making it illegally because we wow. have a contract to make it. Even though he's been working on it for 20 years, yeah. 25 and years. Based on my research, it appears that one reason that Amazon ended up distancing itself from the project was the presence of Paulo Branco on the project and his litigious history. Hmm. Yeah, well, that makes sense. But by March 9th of 2017, Production begins on what will prove to be the final version of Terry Gilliam's The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. They shoot for three months. They wrap in June. 
they're sued again <laughs> by Paolo Bronco. Oh he still claims to own the rights to the project. And he actually files in French court to try to prevent the man who killed Don Quixote from playing at the Cannes Film Festival, where they've been invited to come into competition. The ruling takes so long that they are not included in the competition segment, but they are granted some sort of injunction, and basically they get the ruling at the last minute, and they premiere The Man Who Killed Don Quixote as the closing film to the Cannes Film Festival in 2018, 29 years after Gilliam decided to make the film. It ultimately made $2.5 million at the box office. Oh, no. (laughs) Against, I think, an $18 million budget, it received mixed to positive reviews. Ultimately, I think it's very tempting, and I was tempted coming into this episode, to romanticize Terry Gilliam's journey with this project. His refusal to let go of this dream. You know, it's a Quixotic quest in and of itself. But I think if we take his own words at face value, that's clearly not what happened. So in 2013, Gilliam told The Hollywood Reporter about Don Quixote, quote, It's been around too long, and it's like a tumor. I want to get it out of my body. I don't even know if it will be a good film. I just want to get rid of it. When your cast members are getting prostate infections and dying and the financing is falling through 25 times, like at a certain point, it's time, it's time to let it go. Yeah, and I, I think what's interesting about what Gilliam says here is that perhaps this is kind of a more reasonable default hypothesis for how for the types of people who seek to tell stories in general. And I guess what I mean by that, the more I thought about what he said, this idea of it being like a tumor, I think inspiration can be pleasant, but the gestation of a project is always painful. The translation from idea to script to screen is painful. Consuming what you've created in any way is painful because the final product is more a reflection of the roads not taken, the mistakes and compromises you've made, than it is a completion of the initial seed that sparked all of this. So I think like at best, the storyteller gets some sort of catharsis. Like it's done. It's no longer inside of me. I can move on. I think it's also worth taking a minute to mention there the movie itself, like there's some really problematic uh elements to it. There there are parts of it that are truly offensive. There are some racial stereotypes that are like very heavily played on in a way that it surprised me this movie was from 2018 because it felt it felt very out of touch. Um, It's interesting how much Gilliam's path on this mirrors the actual story of Don Quixote, which I'm glad you explained at the top of this. But, you know, as with Don Quixote, it can be charming to look to the past as this sort of better time and and a time when, you know, chivalry was a thing and and a, a, a time when pursuing what you love at all costs without regard for anything or anyone else is the right way to go. However, there's another way of viewing both this path and also I think the story of Don Quixote where it's not so much charming as it is delusional and someone who is unwilling to let go of the past. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's clear that the film feels rooted in the past as a result. And the dated aspect of the humor and some of the characterizations and certain elements of maybe racism and definitely sexism (laughs) permeate the story in a way that I think would have passed in the early 2000s, but don't cut the mustard today. Thankfully, no. I would just like to reiterate, though, that we remain enormous fans of many of Terry Gilliam's other Oh, works. yeah. I'm not saying he's... I'm not saying he's Don Quixote. I'm just saying. I do think he lost his mind making this movie. Yeah. In a, in a Quixote way. As always, we like to conclude each episode with a brief but hopefully positive segment <laughs> on what <laughs> went mind. right in this project. So Lizzie, please start us off with what went right. Okay, so there is a scene in this movie where in the waterfall area that Chris had mentioned earlier, where in order to like save himself, I'm not even sure what 
the plot was here, Adam Driver bursts out into the most insane musical number that I've ever seen. And it was like, it was amazing. Like I could not look away. I was horrified. I was drawn to it. He goes for it. His like giant six foot four, like handsome horse body is like twisting around in weird ways. And it was Um, really fun. I was like, oh, I want more of those moments in this movie. But it was so few and far between. Yeah, Yeah. but anyway, that, I loved that. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, I think for me, what went right, I, I am sympathetic that he got his catharsis. He he got this movie. Oh, made, I get it you know, completely. Like that I think went right. I, I do think that what I'll say generally about what went right is that someone like Terry Gilliam is continuing to be able to make movies. And what I, what I mean by that is he is such an uncompromising weirdo. He makes the most nuts original stories that are so different and they tend to have larger budgets to be spectacles and those movies have started to disappear the 40 to 50 million dollar dark fairy tale adult imaginative it's either micro budget or it's massive budget exactly and that ecosystem seems to have died and so i look at this and think hopefully not just for Terry Gilliam, but for other directors uh, who like to tell stories in that space, we continue to support them and help them get financing for their projects because I would be sad if we lived in a world where the only two things we can consume are the incredible but limited in scope and budget, you know, indie darlings and the next Marvel or DC uh, or a Star Wars uh, film that gets released. Just want to end it by saying, still better than Fantastic Four. Yes. Uh, (laughs) 100%. Uh, Not as good as Showgirls, though. Uh, No, nothing will be. (laughs) Thank you again, guys, for listening to this week's episode of What Went Wrong. I would like to give a shout-out to a good friend of mine, Federico, who gave me the recommendation for covering The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Thank you for listening, Fed. As always, send us options uh through instagram or email what went wrong pod at gmail.com speaking of which we actually have gotten a couple of submissions from people that want us to cover some things so greatly appreciate it you are seen you are heard and we are working on those ideas so thank you thanks guys we will talk to you next week bye bye what went wrong is a sad boom podcast presented by lizzie bassett and chris winterbauer editing and music by david bowman with cover art from Uthana Uos. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.